Uh, I don't know how many of you have played poker, and, and I'm not going to ask you to uh, raise your hands today. We won't do any true confessions. But in poker, there is, there is a phrase called all-in. Now, none of you know what that means, so I'm going to give you an oversimplified explanation of all-in. None of you have watched Texas Hold'em on ESPN or ESPN2 or ESPN16, you, but it's been there. I don't know how that's really a sport, but it's there. And, I, and I've watched it, and I've actually played myself um, one time. But there's this phrase, and, and really, when, when I did it, when I, when I used the phrase all-in, I was tired of playing. I wanted to go home. And so every hand, all-in. All in. What all in means is, and I kept winning. That's the crazy thing. And finally, Keith and I just got tired and we split the pot. You know, we, we counted our chips and just split because we we're like, we are never getting out of here. So here's what, what, what all in means. However many chips you have in your pile, when you get to the point that you're going to bet those and you say all in, that means everything in your pile you're putting in the pile, it putting in the pot. And this is a very risky move because if you lose, you're done. You're out of the tournament. If you're playing one of those big tournaments, you're out of the tournament. The cool thing, though, is if you win, you've doubled your money. Well, I want you to think about it. We've been studying the life of Moses these last few weeks. And Moses came to... Now, he didn't play poker. But Moses came to a couple of all-in moments. What I want to talk about today is what it, what it takes or what an all-in Christian looks like. Moses had at least two of these all-in moments in his life. Now, we've been studying in, in uh, Hebrews, and today we're going to go to Exodus. But in Hebrews, there's a verse, Hebrews 11:24. It says that when Moses grew up, which is a huge thing, when Moses became mature, when he put away the immature things of his past, when he grew up, it says he refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. At this point, Moses goes all in because it, he could have stayed in Egyptian royalty and he could have had a life of ease, but he chose not to do that. He went all in with God. Because God had told him he was going to be the deliverer of his people. He goes all in with God and, and he identifies himself with a bunch of slaves. Now, I want you to think about this because we're going to kind of use our imaginations today. And I want you to think about Moses has chosen not to go uh, with, with royalty, but he's chosen to go with slaves. And some junk has happened in his life and he's run away. We'll get to that in just a minute. He's run away, but he's, he's long ways away from, from Egypt. And so we're going to, we're going to imagine that, that we're going to have a movie about Moses' life. Not the Ten Commandments that Charlton Heston did. That is so biblically inaccurate that I, you know, I remember my brothers sitting there watching it when I was a kid and going, that's not in Scripture. That's, that's, anyway, that's not accurate. So we're going to have an accurate picture of Moses today. So we're going to come in on Moses and Moses has become a shepherd. And the shepherds are the lowest, that's the lowest job in society, especially for the Egyptians. The Egyptians considered them uh, that not even a job that somebody with any dignity would do. So Moses goes from the palace all the way to shepherding. Now he is he is out and he is uh he's he's with these sheep and and you know we we zoom in on Moses's face and we see a face that is kind of leathery because where he's shepherding sheep is called the wilderness. I'm going to show you a picture of this in just a minute. It is the wilderness and it's said it's called that for a reason. It is desert is bad. So the years, the circumstances of life, the hot weather, the the hot wind, we come in on Moses's face and we see all of these wrinkles and we see this leathery face and then you know if if we're Hollywood doing this movie about that time you'll see Moses turn and look towards the horizon. And you'll hear that slow, sad music come on in the background. And as he's looking gazingly, you'll see the words come at the bottom of the screen. 
40 years earlier. And you'll fade into this time when Moses was back in Egypt. Now, this is real important. you got to see this. Moses is dressed in the robes of royalty. He is like the king's nephew. He is in line to be the king of this whole Egyptian nation. And then the Bible says that he chooses not to be identified with uh, Pharaoh, but to be identified with the slaves. And so God had been working in his life, and, and you see him you know, having those thoughts about my life, and my life surely has more meaning. And so God had told him he's going to be a deliverer. So one day Moses decides to walk out of the palace in his royal robes, and he goes out to check on these slaves, these Israelites, these Jews. He's a Jew. He knows it. And so he goes to check on them. He goes out there and he sees two Jew, uh, two, uh, a Jewish slave being beaten by an Egyptian uh, slave master, an Egyptian lord. And so Moses has this welling inside of him that uh, this is wrong. He's, he's beating up on somebody, a member of my family. And so Moses does what any dipstick would do. He looks around. He doesn't see anybody. He comes up and he kills the Egyptian and buries him in the sand. Because like, that makes sense. So you bury him in the sand. And, and I think that, that when Mo- Moses was going back to the palace, that I think he was feeling pretty good about himself. Deliverer. One Egyptian down, one million to go. You know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna lead God's people out of Egypt. And he struts back and he thinks everything is cool. So the next day, this is in scripture, read it in, in Exodus. So the next day, it says that he goes out to check on the Israelites again, the, the, the Jewish nation. And he walks out there and as he comes out, he sees two Jews, two Hebrews. And they're called Israelites because one of their ancestors had been, uh, called Israel was his name. So he sees two Israelites fighting. And so Moses walks up and, and he says, what is it that thou art doing? That's the King James Version. He said, what are you doing? And, and here's what they said. They stopped their fighting and they say, who died and made you king? That's my version. Who died and made you king? And then one of the, the Hebrews says to Moses, what are you going to do? You're going to kill us like you did the Egyptian yesterday? Now, I don't know if you've ever been caught doing something that you weren't supposed to be doing like something that could get you thrown in jail or, or in this case, could get you the death penalty? Moses says, and you got to see this verse. This is kind of like the understatement in Scripture. Um, Moses says in, in Exodus 2.14, Surely the matter has become known. <laughs> yeah, everybody knows you killed an Egyptian. Now look at verse 15. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses. So Moses was scared for a reason. Now, look what happens. But Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian. Now, I've got a map here, and I want you to look at this map. Now, where the Israelites... See, I got my little laser pointer. We are so high-tech today. The land of Goshen, that's where the Israelites had settled. They settled there because they couldn't come and be next to the Egyptians because all of the Israelites, they were a shepherding people, and shepherding people could not associate with Egyptians because that's the lowest job in society. So the Israelites were right here in Goshen. And you see there's the Nile River and you see Egypt. Now, whenever Moses kills this Egyptian and then he realizes that Pharaoh, his uh, his uh, uncle, is going to kill him, look what it says. It says he runs from there all the way over to here. You see that? He He's running. He goes across the Sinai Peninsula and, and he runs all the way over here. Now, this is significant because in this area, I'm going to show you a picture in just a minute. This area right here is where he settles and he becomes a shepherd there. He gets married and he has a son. Later, he has a second son. But what the Bible tells is that, that shepherds would move around to wherever the grass was. So he's moving around in this area. But then what the Bible tells us where we're about to read, he comes all the way around here and he's 
He's leading the sheep around in this area. Notice something right there? Ever heard of Mount Sinai? You know what happened on Mount Sinai? It's where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. Is that a significant time in history? So, Moses is wandering around here with sheep in this mountainous region. Show that next uh, slide, Danielle. Now, this is kind of a Google Earth. Look, look at what, what color is this land? Brown. Do you know what color the land is year-round? Brown. This is called the wilderness of the Red Sea for a reason. Now, I've got, uh, I've got another picture I'll show you in just a second, but I want to talk to you about a couple of things. You can just leave that one up there for a second. Moses was in the wilderness, and the Bible tells us for 40 years. He's in the wilderness so long that not only is he in the wilderness, the wilderness gets inside of Moses. And I kind of think over these 40 years, as he's herding sheep, the lowest job in society, I kind of think that Moses put the whole deliverer thing in the back of his mind, and he wasn't really worrying about that. And uh, the, the, I think he's thinking, this is as good, it, as good as it gets. You know, I used to be in royalty, but this is as good as it's going to get now. Here's the deal with God, though. God is always preparing you for something next. I mean, think about this. He's about to lead the children of Israel over here across right in this area is where they cross the Red Sea when God parts the Red Sea. Then he's going to lead them down here to Mount Sinai in this area. He's going to get the Ten Commandments. At that point, he's going to come up here because this is the promised land. And if you look in your Bible and you see your your maps there, Kadesh Barnea is where they camp the first time when they're supposed to go into the promised land that God was going to give them, the land of Canaan. land of Canaan is up here, a very fertile land. And they disobey. So when they disobey, what happens is they then have to turn back. God says, you will not go into this land that I promised you. They, they sent spies into the land. They were gone 40 days. And God says, because you disobeyed me, I will not give you this land right now. I will make you wander in the wilderness one year for every day the spies were in the land. How many days were they in the land? 40 days. So they wander for 40 years. Who is the best prepared guy in the world to lead them around this wilderness? Moses, because he's been there. God is always preparing you, even in wilderness times, for what he has for you in the future. So you got to be careful and not let that wilderness get in you. God has not abandoned you. God has a plan, and we're going to talk about his plan in just a minute. Now, when we're going to read the verse here in just a second, it's going to call this Mount Horeb instead of Mount Sinai. Those words are interchangeable. All right, stick that next slide up there, Danielle. Now, this is modern-day Mount Sinai, or... Uh, Horeb, which is uh, Moses called the mountain of God. It's significant that he calls it the mountain of God because before he ever gets the idea that he's supposed to go back to Pharaoh and lead the, uh, the Israelites out of Egypt, he's wandering around here with his sheep. Now, this is really cool because somewhere on this... Oops, don't press that one. Power off. Don't do it again. Somewhere on this mountain, and it's really hard for us to imagine, Moses is bringing the sheep to pasture... And then look what the, this verse says in Exodus. So Moses said, he sees something over here at the side. Moses said, I must see, I must turn aside and see this. There is a bush, this marvelous sight. I got to get to it. Why the bush is not burned up. Okay, so God has this, this bush that catches Moses' attention. And Moses goes over there to check it out because he's never seen a bush that's on fire that doesn't get consumed. So he goes up and God begins to talk to Moses right there. Now, where am I? Go ahead, James, and be putting that up there. James is, we have a bigger board. If you've ever watched Tim, the tool man, Taylor, and, you know, bigger and better, this is a <laughs> board. Um, I've been writing on a little dinky one, and, and so I thought I would get a big one. Hand this to me, Caleb. 
I thought I would get a big one, and this is a big one. So we have to, uh, we had to get a new tripod and everything to put this thing on. All right. <laughs> uh, hey, take number four on the sliders, on the lights, and slide that down a little bit. There we go, because that was quite bright. Everybody was feeling the presence of God just then on the front row. Now, Moses comes up with all kinds of excuses why he is not going to go with God. It's that 40 years have passed, God, I can't go, I can't talk good, I can't do all this. Finally, God says, I am big enough to overcome all the obstacles that you faced in Egypt before, and I want you to go and I want you to be a part of this. Now, I want you to think about this, because here's where we're going today. We said that before the beginning of time, God existed. I'm going to write bigger. I can do that now on my big board. God existed, and before time ever began, God had a plan. God's plan was to seek and to save what was lost. Can y'all see that? All right, we've got to turn it just a little bit, and it'll probably fall, and that's how things go for me. I am not turning it. It takes a big man to do that. Thanks, sir. Yeah, I think that'll work. If it falls, you will never forget this sermon illustration. Now, God existed before the beginning of time, before He created the world, before He created people. He had a plan, the Bible says, before He created anyone to seek and to save lost people. Now, so God was not surprised when Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden sinned. That was not a surprising thing to God. A few years later, when, when men and women had become so sinful that God had to destroy the earth and save only Noah, God was not surprised that the earth was so f- sinful. God knew before the beginning of time that He was going to have to seek and to save lost people. And He did it this time through Noah. God was not surprised that after Noah came off the ark and they began to have descendants, God was not surprised that one of His descendants was named Abraham. And the Bible tells us that Abraham had faith like no one else who had walked the earth before, and he became God's friend, and he believed in God, and God credited that to him as righteousness. And so God said, I'm going to make a whole Jewish nation out of you, Abraham. And God was not surprised that one of His descendants was named Moses. And God knew all of this before the beginning of the world. And so what He did was, God shows up and He invites Moses. Here's my Moses. He's got to have lots of hair. I can't draw a leathery face, but I'm going to put a little goatee on him this week. I don't know whether he had that or not. That's not biblical. So God invites Moses to be involved in his plan. God says, Moses, I want you to be involved in my plan. I want you to deliver the Israelites from Egypt. And so Moses says, okay, I'll do that, God. After some some, uh, discussion with God, he says, okay, I will do that. Well, we know that what Moses did was he comes up here and he begins to take matters in his own hands. Because, I want you to realize, when Moses tried to deliver the Israelites his way, how many Egyptians died? One. Okay. He kills an Egyptian. Years later, whenever he does it God's way, you know how many Egyptians die? Zero. He tried to do things God's way. And so what he did was, he had his eyes on God. Sure, God, I'll get on your plan. But somewhere along the way, he decided to go his own way. He disobeys God. God never told him to kill an Egyptian. And here's what happens when we disobey God. When Moses disobeyed God, he got off of God's path and he comes down here and God allows him to go through some consequences. Because you never get the blessing of God by disobeying God. 
You will never receive the blessing of God. God loves you so much, He'll let you go your own way, but He also loves you so much that He's going to allow the consequences to hit you. And so you'll experience the full force, the full force of your stupid decisions. God will allow you to do that. But here's the thing. God also is giving you plenty of opportunities to repent. Repentance means to change your mind. It means that you change the way you think so that it changes your actions. Everything we do begins with a thought. All sin begins with a thought. And so what we do is we change our actions and we repent. In order to repent, you have to humble yourself. God was waiting on Moses to repent. Now, here's the thing. If you are a follower of God and you have gone off of of God's path and you've disobeyed and you've experienced consequences, God will give you numerous opportunities to repent. But you got to be humble. If you're full of yourself, God says there's no room for me and I'm going to let you have some more consequences. But if you're truly a follower of God, He will give you repeated opportunities to repent. But there's going to be a day that God says, that's it. I'm done. And there's going to come a day when it's repent or perish. I don't know if you know any people that that God has given them repeated opportunities and repeated opportunities. They keep thumbing their nose at God, but eventually they die. I've had people in my family that we believe God took them because He gave them repeated opportunities to come back to Him and they wouldn't do it. They knew the truth of God. They knew what it was like to follow God, but they walked away from Him time and time again and finally God took them. My father-in-law is one of those. Strange situation. We believe God took him because of his lifestyle, because he was tired of waiting on him to repent. Now, Moses, luckily, he repents. And and repentance is this attitude of the heart where I say, God, your way's right, my way's wrong. Moses, it says, through his 40 years in the wilderness, the Bible tells us later that he was the most humble man on the face of the planet. He was the most humble man alive. And that's who God chose to go on this trip with him. Now, what happens here specifically with Moses is God comes to him in the form of a burning bush. I'm going to make it red. I tried to figure out how to draw fire and I can't draw fire. So Moses, God comes to Moses in the form of a burning bush, catches his attention. And I just got to stop and say here, how many burning bushes are there in the Scripture? One. You're not going to have a burning bush. God's going to come to you. He's going to give you opportunities to repent or perish eventually. He's going to give you a, a chance. When you repent and you come back over here and you humble yourself, God says, I can trust you. Now I'm going to call you to do something bigger than yourself. God always has a God-sized plan. If you can accomplish whatever you think God is calling you to do, it is not God's plan. Because God wants to do something bigger than you so that when it gets accomplished, you know who gets the glory for that? God and not you. So if God is calling you to do something, you come to me and you say, oh, I feel God's calling me to do this. And I say, well, can you do it in your power? Yeah, then that's not God. God's plan is always bigger than you and me. Now, in this instance, God comes to Moses and after a little bit of discussion, Moses decides to go with God. And here's what you have to do in order to go with God. You have to adjust your life and obey. You see how we've come full circle? Disobedience, consequences. God gives you the opportunity to come back. Over here, God comes to you after you've repented, after you've humbled yourself. He said, I've got a huge plan to save the world. I've got a huge plan that lasts forever. I want you to be involved with it. You cannot stay in the wilderness and go with God at the same time. It does not work that way. 
So you obey, you adjust your life, and you obey. You cannot stay where you are and go with God at the same time. That is an impossibility. Now, it doesn't, uh, doesn't take a whole lot of thinking to realize that Moses' pattern is the same pattern that you and I go through a lot of times in life. Many of you here, at some point, you gave your life to Christ and you asked Him to be the forgiver of your sins and the, and the leader of your life. And you got on God's path. But there was some time that you took your eyes off of God. Maybe you put it on circumstances. Maybe you just put it on yourself. And you got off of God's path. And you started suffering consequences that God never intended for you to suffer. But it was because you were going your way. And God is giving you repeated opportunities to come to Him to repent and get back on His path. And, and you've, you've uh, turned your back on God repeatedly. Maybe today is the day that you're going to realize I am so far from God and I am so full of myself that I've got to get back to God if I'm going to do anything that's going to last for eternity. Now, Moses realized that God's plan was so big that, that it was written about before the world ever began. It's a plan that's written about in the pages of Scripture. It's a plan that's going to outlast your life and my life at this time, and it's a plan that will continue until Jesus Christ comes again. I just finished in my personal devotion reading the the book of Revelation. That's the last book in the Bible. And we win. Jesus wins. And Janie and I, she came in the other day in our room reading about this and going, no way, can you believe this? God does this and God does this and all the armies of the world line up against Jesus and when Jesus comes, He's on a white horse and He's got flaming eyes and it says that there's a sword comes out of His mouth with which He destroys evil people who have opposed His plan. And there's an angel that comes out and calls all of the birds of the world to come and feast on the flesh of those who oppose God's plan. In the end, Jesus Christ wins. So this plan is huge. And God has called us to be a part of it. But you've got to adjust and obey if you're going to be a part of that. Now, I call this the cycle of doom. And many of us are on the cycle of doom. And we could go around today and we could tell about, oh yeah, I got my eyes off. Here's the consequences I suffered. And there was a time and there was this preacher and there was this and I got back on God's path and God invited me to do something. And I did it again and I got off and I went around. Did you know it's not supposed to be that way? God has provided clues in Scripture of how you can be an all-in Christian and you don't have to get off of on this cycle of doom. God has this plan, and there's five things that God wants from an all-in Christian. And see, if you're going to follow God's plan, you get off the cycle of doom and you begin to bloom. I made that up myself, and I know you're impressed. Now, we're going to talk about what it requires to be an all-in Christian. And we're going to talk about how some, so many people get off of this. They're not blooming as a Christ follower. They're on the cycle of doom. And if you want to get off that cycle of doom and do something that lasts and continue your walk with God, then you need to be an all-in Christian. To be an all-in Christian, you're going to exemplify five characteristics that we're going to go over right now. All-in Christian, number one. You got this on your listening guide. Somebody thought we were never going to get there. This is the five G's of an all-in Christian. Number one, an all-in Christian understands the grace of God. We'll put grace up here. Understands the grace of God and has asked Christ to be the forgiver of their sins and the leader of their life. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, one of the most famous passages in the New Testament, says you have been saved by grace. There's that word. Through believing. Now, I want you to realize what grace is. You did not save yourselves... It was the gift from God. It was not the result of your own efforts, so you cannot brag about it. God has made us what we are. 
Grace means you receive something that you do not deserve. You do not deserve heaven. You do not deserve forgiveness for your sins. You deserve hell. I deserve hell. But grace means I accept what Christ did for me. I receive something I do not deserve. And I get adopted into God's family. Now, in this case, God forgives you when you accept grace. He forgives you of your past sins. He forgives you of your present sins. He forgives you of your future sins. That does not give you a license to go out and sin. Okay? (laughs) Don't hear me saying that. But God already knows what your future is going to be. And he's saying, if you'll accept my grace and you'll be adopted into my family, that's the first step to being an all-in, fully devoted follower of Christ. It's a free gift. All you do is receive it. And um, that means you understand it with your head, but you also apply it to your life. It's not enough to understand grace. You've got to appropriate grace. If you've got a check in your hand and you never cash that check, you've never appropriated that check. If you just think in your head, oh yeah, I believe there's a God. That's not enough. you got to cash the check and ask Christ to be the forgiver of your sins and the leader of your life. You transfer ownership from your life to Him. That's what it means, the first step to understand and appropriate grace. Second step, an all-in Christian is committed to spiritual growth. Committed to spiritual growth. Again, this is not lip service. You demonstrate a pattern of life change. You don't just say that you are committed to spiritual growth. You demonstrate a pattern. Ephesians 2.10 In Christ Jesus, God made us to do good works, which God planned in advance, in advance for us to live our lives doing. Once you accept God's grace, then you commit your life to spiritual growth. And, and here's the deal. How do you know if a plant is alive? It's green, unless I own it, and then it's dead. I killed, I have killed every plant that I've ever owned. It blooms. Thank you, Jeff, tying in the, the theme. Um, but how do you know if the grass is alive? It's green. It grows. It shows evidence of having life in it. How do you know if a Christian is alive? They show evidence that they are becoming more like Jesus Christ. If you are never a thankful person, if you are criticizing all the time, if you've never had an attitude of gratitude, you're probably not a Christian because you don't understand what it costs Jesus Christ to purchase your salvation. So a Christian is going to be someone who, who looks at life and says, I'm thankful for the things I have. Not gets, because when you get your eyes off of it and, and start wanting things you don't have, that's when you get on the cycle of doom. A Christian is going to begin to show good qualities. God said again, before He created the world, He created those who are going to be His followers to do good works. Uh, James, that we studied back in, in the fall, James says that if you, uh, faith without action, without works, is dead. It's useless. So don't tell me how great a Christian you are if you don't do jack for God. And then the third thing is they help other people. They show good qualities and they help other people. And next week we're going to talk about some things that kill our passion in the Christian life, some things that keep us from doing what we know is right. We're going to look at seven of those next week, so I hope you'll be back. Third thing an all-in Christian does is he is committed to a small group of believers. A small group. There was a study done uh, years ago on 200 pastors who had committed sexual sin and been kicked out of the ministry. And they tried to analyze why they'd done what they had done, and they found out that the only characteristic that all of them had in common was none of them were committed to a small group of men who would hold them accountable for the way they were living. In other words, they had no one in their life to say, yo, dude, um, I think that's a bad idea. 
I don't think you should be going there. I don't think all 200 of them had no one in their life to hold them accountable. A small group of believers can see the thing is you become like the people that you hang out with. If you want to be broke, hang out with broke people. If you want your marriage to suck, hang out with people whose marriages suck. If you, if you want to be far from God, hang out with people who are far from God. But the opposite is also true. If you want a marriage that flourishes, find people who love each other and hang out with them and ask them what they do. How do you resolve conflicts? How do you do banking? Get into financial peace. You want to talk about, cause I was one of those that, you know, Janie and I used to have conflicts. The only thing that we really had conflict in our marriage was over money. So I did what any thinking man would do. I said, you take it over. And I just didn't worry about it. I never knew how much money we had. We've gotten into financial peace. And here's what financial peace did for us. We talk about money and she doesn't get stressed out that I'm going to get mad. And, and there's no, there's, there's no thing that, that you go, well, it seems like we spent too much money on socks and underwear last month. When you are keeping account, there's no seems like. It's right there in black and white. And so she comes to me and we have these negotiations and there's no tension whatsoever in the air. And, and she says, hey, we need some more money in the, in the food budget because our son eats everything. <laughs> oh, I'm another fishing trip for that. Um, but, but he's a growing boy and so we've had to expand it. Okay, we put this over here, but that means we're gonna have to cut back over here. And, and there is no tension. Anyway, I'll get off that. If you, um, if you want to be close to God, you hang out with people who are close to God because you are going to resemble the people that you hang out with the most. The folks that you spend the most time with, you will reflect them. So it just makes sense. If you want to get close to God, you move closer to people who are close to God. Number four, an all-in Christian is serving God by using their spiritual gifts. By using their spiritual gifts. 1 Peter 4.10 says, Each of us has been blessed with one of God's many wonderful gifts to be used in the service of others. So use your gift well. As a human being, you have talents that God gave you at birth. As a Christian, you have at least one spiritual gift that God gave you at your spiritual rebirth. This is not a suggestion, a helpful suggestion for how you can do Christian life better. This is a command from God. Use your gift in building up the body of Christ. God never gives you anything for you. God gives you something so that you'll pass it on to someone else. One of the steps in Celebrate Recovery, step 12, is I need to pass on to other people what I have learned because God doesn't heal you for you. God heals you for somebody who's not as far on the journey as you are so that you can help them along that journey. That's why God heals you. That's why God blesses you. That's why God gives you a spiritual gift. You are expected by your God that you say you follow to get up off of your butt and serve. Thank you. Amen. I give Dwayne a hard time for that. I know that's right, baby. That's what we say around here. But Dwayne, old habits die hard. Amen says it means so be it. So that's all right. We will take amens when I can get them. If I pause long enough, you're supposed to say something. I'm just making sure you're still awake. (laughs) If you're sitting and soaking, you are not a fully devoted follower of Christ. There comes a point when you got to serve. And finally, an all-in Christian demonstrates their values by giving to God. And I, I know, I know, I hear this all the time. But I don't have time to serve. Do you know how much that would cost me to tithe, to give 10% of my income? I'm pretty good with math. (laughs) 
if you ask the wrong questions, you're going to get the wrong answers. The, the, the wrong question is not what does it cost. The, the right question is what is it worth? Next week we're going to do baptism. Two men for sure are going to be baptized next, next Sunday. And, and when I, when I got my contribution statement, because they're out there on the table, when I got my contribution statement, I opened it up. I was pleasantly surprised at how much money Janie and I had given. Not that it's a big deal, but I just I didn't know we'd given that much. I know we tithe and give a little extra for the building, but I, I didn't know how much it was. And I looked at that, and as I looked at it, I thought that money helped someone come to know Christ. That money helped build this building and sustain this church so that somebody who had never heard about Christ before could hear about Christ. And they're going to be baptized next week as a sign that they have followed Christ, that they understand the grace of God, and they've appropriated it to their lives. And baptism is the public symbol that I'm all in for Christ. That's going to happen next week. Baptism, I love Baptism Sunday because it's another symbol of someone else. What what did it cost? You know, I, I don't sit around thinking, okay, well, I've got to give this much so that... No, I do what God says, which is give 10% of my income. This whole sermon has been about a spiritual thermometer or a spiritual checkup. Because I want you to think about this, God's plan for an all-in Christian, the 5Gs. I want you to think about where you are. Grace, growth, groups, gifts, and giving. If you think of this as a wheel, and these are the spokes of the wheel, what happens if you're only running on one spoke on your wheel? You got a whomp in your get along. I mean, I've ridden bikes before where the whole tire blows out and I've ridden them where things have come off and, and, and I've, I've flown over handlebars. You know, I've done all of those things and I've figured out that a wheel needs all of the spokes to work. And, and this is like the systems in your body. Do you know there are nine major systems in your body? There's a respiratory system. There's a, the, uh, there's a circulatory. Okay. Yeah. We're not going to go in all nine of them. Yeah. I'm not circulating very well right now. Um, there's all these systems. If one of those systems is ill, does your body know? Oh, yeah. If one of these systems is ill, does your spiritual body know? You better believe it. And, and you know, one of the things that we do every year, and we're required by law to do this, is, is to print out the contribution statements. And so when you go out there today, be sure and get yours. If somebody doesn't pick it up, then we, we will mail it to you because we've got to get it out by the end of, of January. And, and I know what's going to happen. This happens every year. Some of you are going to open it up and you're going to be pleasantly surprised. You're going to go, I had no idea. We gave that much. Sweet. And as you walk out, you're going to feel God saying, good job. But some of you are going to open those up and you're going to be shocked at how little you gave. Some of you are going to go out there and realize you didn't give anything. And, and I hope that instead of being mad at the messenger, you'll decide to do something about that right now. Best time to plan for next Christmas is right now. Janie and I figured this out a couple of years ago. If we'll start planning for Christmas in January, there's no pressure when we get there. It's cash. Everything's cash. The best time to plan for next year's year-end giving statement is right now. Do something about it. We have a few folks that do the automatic draft because I know, I know what happens. People all the time, they'll, they'll line up all of their, their budget items and then whatever's left over, they'll give the church. You know how much is usually left over when you do it that way? Nothing. Yeah, or negative. Credit cards. We don't take credit cards. Um, we will take debit cards, but not credit cards. There's a difference. But, but what's going to happen is you're going to give leftovers. You never get blessed by God that way. 
You don't find a, an all-in Christian who doesn't give. You don't find an all-in Christian who's not at least trying to discover their spiritual gifts. And some of you say, I don't know what my gift is. You know how you find your spiritual gift? You can take tests and all that stuff. Standardized tests aren't going to tell you jack. How you find your spiritual gift is you start serving and you start finding places that you like to serve. Janie, when we first started, she did the older children, the first through fifth grade children. And she did that because we didn't have anybody to, to work there. Eventually, some folks came in and worked there. She moved to what she's now with the 18-month to 3-year-olds. She loves it. She absolutely loves it. She did the first job out of necessity. She does this job out of sheer enjoyment and pleasure for working with the 18-month to 3-year-olds. And some of you are thinking, oh, no. Well, man, we don't let you change diapers anyway, so you're out. You know, that's no excuse if you go in there. That's just a, that's just a safety policy. But you can serve somewhere. And when you begin to experiment, God says, I can trust you. And He begins to reveal to you something that you are equipped to do by God. 